I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the little book of Jude. Right before the book of Revelation, the book of Jude. This morning we will begin a study of Jude that will probably take, I would suspect, five or six Sundays. This morning I have entitled my discourse to you, Contending Earnestly for the Faith. Before we look at the text, let me preface my remarks to you this morning by sharing you a bit of my heart. I must admit that my heart is deeply burdened as I come to you this morning. And the burden that I am experiencing is beyond the regular pain of slander and ridicule that's part and parcel of being a pastor. It's beyond the customary rejection of the truth. It's, it's even beyond the common sadness of watching people that you know and love destroy themselves with their sin. These are all inevitable burdens that a shepherd must bear. But I find myself in a season of life, quite frankly, where the sheer magnitude of apostasy, especially in ostensibly evangelical churches, is overwhelming. It seems like everywhere I turn, I see false teachers, I hear false doctrine, and weekly I get brochures inviting me to church leadership and church growth conferences where the theme is basically twofold. In fact, I, I got three of these things just this week. Here's what the theme is basically all about if you go to these things. First of all, since the culture doesn't like Christianity, we must change our methods as well as our message. Because, after all, church is boring, it's irrelevant to the culture, they believe that it's completely out of touch with the beliefs of the day. And so, therefore, we need to learn how to adapt to the culture, how to embrace the culture, and how to learn from the culture. How to let the felt needs of seekers, therefore, determine both the method as well as the message of the church. So in essence, you go to these places and you learn how to become more like the world in order to win it. You learn how to embrace the culture. And as a result, you can see what happens with the churches. Most of them become little more than a rock concert with entertaining and humorous sentimental sermonettes filled with half-truths, but never really interacting with the holy text. Or, as in the case of the popular emergent church movement that embraces the postmodern mindset that insists that truth is not objective, but subjective. Therefore, it can be determined by every individual. Whatever is true to you is true. If that's not what's true to me, that's okay. My truth may be different than yours. And therefore, embracing the mystery of uncertainty is the ultimate virtue. In light of that, preaching and sound doctrine are out, dialogue, cynicism, and the non-authoritative exchange of ideas is in. That's one big theme. 
The culture doesn't like us, so we need to do something to embrace the culture and change our method and our message so that they will like us. The second theme is basically since the majority of the world lives in poverty and disease and since the environment is unraveling, our focus must change and we must be dedicated to social relief and environmental activism. And, of course, churches that adopt these philosophies of ministry experience phenomenal growth. And many of the things they do are noble. Their humanitarian deeds are to be commended. And so you might ask, what's the problem, Pastor? And why do we not embrace these trends? Well, there are too many reasons to list them all. But basically, and most fundamentally, these ministry philosophies are not biblical. The Lord Jesus Christ, the head of this spiritual organism called the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, has given us very clear and definitive instructions as to how we are to conduct ourselves as a church. He has told us that we are to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. He has said to us, don't be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17, Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Of course the culture doesn't like what we do, what we say. Because they hate the truth. He went on to say in chapter 2 of verse 2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul didn't come to them in theatrics as an entertainer, as some entrepreneur trying to attract a crowd, as some smooth talking salesman. He says, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God. Now, I would submit to you that there's not, but at least one, there's only one, let me rephrase that, there's probably one leadership pastor's conference that I know of, and there may be more, but I only know of one, that would have men come to learn about what I've just said, and that would be the Shepherds Conference at Grace Community Church in California. But none of the rest of them that I see that I get materials on, they're not saying come to this conference and we will teach you how to interact with the holy text of Scripture because it is the power of God unto salvation. We're going to teach you how to humble yourselves before the living God and take your instructions from him and present the truth in fear and trembling. We're going to teach you how to come before a group of people and say with confidence, thus says the Lord. That's not the message today. Teaching shepherds have been called and gifted. The word of God tells us in Ephesians 4 for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, let's see a conference on that. He goes on to say, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Let's see a conference on that. Pastors, leaders, come to our conference and we will help you shepherd your people so that they will not be duped by false teachers. We are called to fight for divine truth and for the purposes of God. In 1 Timothy 3.15, the church is said to be the pillar and the support of the truth. And Paul told Timothy, and therefore, all ministers of the gospel in 2 Timothy 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. In other words, Timothy, I want you to sit down, look me in the eye, and I want you to hear what I have to say because it is coming from God himself. Here is my charge to you, Pastor Timothy. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, when it's popular and when it's not, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Beloved, let me make it very clear. There is no place in Scripture where we are admonished to ask people what they want to hear. But there are repeatedly places where we are instructed what we are to tell them, what we are to give them. When you stop and think about it, spiritual cadavers don't know what they need. They're spiritually dead. I hear people all the time say, well, yes, but you've got to understand, we're trying to reach the unchurched. With what? What are you trying to reach them with? Because certainly what you're presenting is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the critics will say, well, yes, but in John 6, Jesus met the physical needs of the people, of the multitudes. Well, yes, he did. But not in an effort to attract a crowd. And then later on, sneak up on them with some deluded gospel. That is non-offensive. In fact, the reason why he met the needs of the people was to reveal to them his deity and authenticate his message before unbelieving men. If you want to use John 6, I'm welcome. I would welcome you to do that. Because if you will read the rest of it, you will see that Jesus continued by rebuking them for following him only because he was meeting their physical needs. And then when he presented to them the truth of repentance of sin and denying themselves and following him as Savior, guess what happened? In verse 66, it says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Well, there are many, many clear instructions that are totally contrary to the neo-evangelical obsessions that go on and on in our day. And we find the Scripture telling us something radically different. And it just grieves my heart. And I see so many people, even in our area, getting sucked into this stuff. Yet the masses of Christians these days 
seem to lack discernment. It's as if they have a case of spiritual AIDS. They have no spiritual immune system to protect them from the many diseases of deception. Because of all this, beloved, I believe that God is being dishonored. I believe that the holiness of His person and His character is consistently being eviscerated in places that call themselves churches. I believe that the truth of the gospel is under siege. I believe that the church of Jesus Christ, which he purchased with his very blood, is becoming in many places a harlot bride, reminiscent of faithless Israel and her treacherous sister Judah, as you will recall in Jeremiah 3, that together played the harlot in public On every hill, underneath the tree, embracing the culture of paganism rather than remaining separate from it. And I believe it is certainly not an accident that my burden coincides with our study with 1st and 2nd Peter that we've just finished. And now coming to the study of Jude, for as we will see, Jude was likewise burdened. For the very same kinds of things that were going on in the first century. Let's look at the text. Jude 1, and it's just one chapter. And this morning we will look at the first three verses. Notice what he says. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude was the half-brother of Jesus, this is not Jude the Apostle, and he was also the brother of James, the one that he refers to here, who was also Jesus' brother, James being, by the way, the author of the epistle of James, and he was the head of the church at Jerusalem. So that's a little bit of the family background. According to 1 Corinthians 9, 5, Jude was a married man. And he was an evangelist, a church planter in that early church period. We believe that Jude's epistle was written right after Second Peter. As we will see, it's basically a commentary on Second Peter. But it was written prior to Peter's martyrdom and probably between Peter's death and before the Destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. So it was written about 68 or 70, somewhere in there. And obviously the issues of false teachers and apostasy were very serious even in the first century. And this morning, we begin by examining these first three verses of Jude's epistle. And I've divided them into three very simple categories. We're going to see, first of all, Jude's example. Secondly, his encouragement. And thirdly, his exhortation. And my prayer this morning is that we will develop a sincere passion to 
emulate Jude's character and be comforted by his encouragement and certainly heed his exhortation. First of all, notice Jude's example. Verse one, he says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. You see, here we see Jude's humility. He did not say Jude, the brother of Jesus, the Messiah. Nor did he say Jude, the brother of James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Nor did he say Jude, the son of Mary and Joseph, but simply Jude, a bond servant. A bond servant was a well-known designation in those days of Roman slavery. And a bond servant really denoted one who voluntarily chose to serve their master. This, of course, is reminiscent of the Old Testament Hebrew slave who could be freed and were supposed to be freed, according to the Mosaic law, after six years. Unless that slave loved his master so much that he chose to voluntarily remain in his service until he died. In fact, there was a ceremony for that type of a slave, a ceremony before God himself. We read about it, for example, in Exodus 21, 6. Then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. So in other words, they would come to the doorpost, put their ear up against it, and it would be pierced by the master. This symbolically declared that this slave willingly gave up his liberty and was now permanently attached, as it were, to his master's house to serve him until he died. So unlike the apostates that Jude will soon rebuke in this letter, Jude himself considered himself to be a bondservant, one that was willingly devoted to the one that he loved, his Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. And friends, might I say that submission to our Lord Jesus Christ is a rare thing today. A lot of Christians give lip service to it, but very few love their master so much that they are willing to give up all other liberties for the sake of serving him. And child of God, please hear this. The master does not want your superficial churchianity. He does not want lip service. He wants the total surrender of your will. If I could put it a little bit differently, he wants the pierced ear of joyful submission and voluntary service. A willingness to serve him as Lord. And such was the example of Jude, who, interestingly enough, did not even believe in the deity of his half-brother until after the resurrection, likewise James. And after this salutation of humility, Jude now offers words of comfort to his readers. And his readers were, of course, confused. They were frustrated. They were being misled because of the relentless and deadly deceptions of false teachers. So notice, first of all, his encouragement here in verse 1. He says it's, he's writing to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. 
I like to think of this as a succinct soteriology. Soteriology is a theological word that basically means the study or the doctrine of salvation. And here we have a listing of four blessed truths that define our relationship to God, our salvation. We are called, loved, kept and blessed. And what comfort this must have been to those early saints as well as to us. Let's look at these terms for a moment. The word called is a New Testament term that commonly denotes the idea of being personally chosen as saints, whereby God selects or draws those he has elected to salvation. Again, our salvation is not dependent upon the man who wills nor the man who runs, in other words, human effort, but solely upon God who has mercy, Romans 9.16. And this is therefore a concept referring to that irresistible, compelling force of God himself, whereby he breathes spiritual life into a sinner, those who are dead in their sin, those who are unable and unwilling to respond in repentant faith to the gospel, and he calls them to himself. Jesus spoke of this in John 6:44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There's the irresistible compelling force. And since no man seeks after God, he must seek us. And we read of this word called in many places. Romans 1, 7, Paul speaks about the called ones, those that are called as saints. And in Romans 8, 29, he says, those, those whom he foreknew or foreloved, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And in verse 30, he says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul speaks of it as well in Ephesians 4.1, where he implores us to walk in a manner worthy of, worthy of the calling with which you have been called. A marvelous concept. And likewise, in 2 Timothy 1.8, we read that God is the one who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So this is a humbling truth, dear friends, that God has called us. But not only that, he loves us. Notice, beloved in God the Father, Jude says. This is a staggering concept to think that God would set his love upon us before time began, knowing full well that we would have nothing to do with him when we were born. That as sinners by nature, we would violate his law, we would rebel against him, and we would fail to conform to his moral character and his desires, and yet we are beloved in God the Father. The grammar here is very, very important. It literally means in the original language that he chose to love us in eternity past and that love continues in the present and forever. That little phrase right there in its grammatical construction is enough to refute the error that I hear so often that people can somehow lose their salvation or that God somehow 
based his decrees upon what he saw man would eventually do rather than what he chose to do in his eternal counsels. So we have been and always will be objects of God's love and blessing. He goes on, not only are we called and beloved in God the Father, but he says we're kept. Notice he says we're kept for Jesus Christ. A a better translation could be even kept by Jesus Christ. The term kept means in the original language to keep something safe from harm, to preserve, to denote. It denotes a, a watchful care over something that is precious. We studied a similar concept in 1 Peter 1, verses 4 through 5, where we read about an inheritance that we have that is reserved in heaven for you. You will recall reserved was a military term, and it had the idea of a garrison of soldiers that would vigilantly guard and defend a precious possession. And there again, that grammar tells us that They are guarding something that already exists. Indeed, our glorious inheritance is guarded by Almighty God. Neither the enemy of our souls nor his fiendish demons, nor nor our own stupidity, our own rebellion, can in any way take away our salvation. Our foolishness could never forfeit, exchange, or renounce our salvation because according to 1 Peter 1 verse 5, we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So again, Jude is saying here, dear friends, those of you that have been called, that are beloved in the Father, that are also kept by Jesus Christ. And then he also reminds them that you're blessed in verse 2. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied you, multiplied to you. In other words, the very God that has called us and loves us and keeps us lavishes his affections upon us. And here Jude prays that this undeserved mercy and peace and love of God will be multiplied. Literally means to increase or to swell, to expand. And he knew that they would need this, especially in light of the dangers of false teachers who were constantly trying to inflict their savagery upon the elect of that day as they do today. So, friends, may I encourage you, as Jude has encouraged us, as believers, we have been called, we have have been and are and always will be loved, and we're forever kept and constantly and eternally blessed. These concepts should be the theme of every song and certainly the praise in every prayer. What an enormous encouragement this must have been to those persecuted saints. And it's fascinating that all of these truths were really what Jude was starting to write about. And then as if in midstream, the Spirit of God changes his direction and he doesn't expand upon them. Notice verse three, he says, beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation. In other words, while while I intended to further develop The the doctrines pertaining to our glorious and undeserved salvation. I I became burdened over a matter of these false teachers that are invading the church. And he says, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And rightfully so, because we know, according to Revelation two and three, 
that five out of the seven churches in Asia Minor were already in various stages of apostasy. And here we discover the passionate burden of Jude's heart, one that eclipsed his original intention to write about our common salvation. And here's where, thirdly, we discover Jude's exhortation. And friends, may I say very clear to you, this is an appeal to each of us, not to just me or others as pastors and shepherds and teachers, but we are all called here to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, I find it interesting that many Christians are very familiar with a number of the exhortations that we have in Scripture. They're familiar with the exhortation to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love their neighbor as much as they love themselves. They're familiar with the importance to evangelize, to pray, to be good stewards, to love their enemies, to help the poor, etc., etc. But precious few know anything about the exhortation before us, namely to contend earnestly for the faith. Now, what does this mean? To contend earnestly literally means to defend or struggle against something with all of your might. It's the idea of battling against an enemy with the intensity of a wrestling match, as we see the term used in other places. And grammatically, we see that this struggle is a perpetual, ongoing, continuous exertion. And for what cause? Well, he says we are to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. This refers to the body of divine revelation, the objective truth of the word of God. That encompasses our common salvation that he was just talking about. And notice that this was entrusted once for all. In the original language, the term literally denotes something that was done for all time with lasting results that never needs repetition. And if I can get technical for just a moment, once for all delivered, the term delivered is in the aorist passive participle. And the aorist means that it was an act completed in the past with continuing elements. And the fact that it's a passive voice means that the faith was not discovered by men, but rather given to men by God. And to whom was it delivered? To the saints, tois hagios, the ones whom God set apart for himself in eternity past. So if you look at the exegesis, the grammar of this incredible text, literally what he's saying to us, I want you to contend earnestly for the faith, which means to continuously fight with all of your might to proclaim and protect the objective truth of God contained in the Holy Scriptures that was revealed once for all time and eternity, never again needing to be repeated, a body of truth that was not discovered by men, but given to men by God and delivered to the ones whom He has set apart for Himself in eternity past. That's what it means to contend earnestly for the faith. Beloved, God's word is final and it is all sufficient. It is complete 
There's nothing else that he needs to say in his revelation to man. And it alone is authoritative and binding upon the church. And for this, we must contend. The Apostle Paul understood this relentless battle for the truth. At the very end of his life, the old soldier of the faith rejoiced in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. My friends, I can only pray that my legacy and yours will approximate such a glorious testimony. But when we fail to contend earnestly, apostasy will inevitably gain the victory. It will inevitably creep into the church and wreak havoc. And since its inception, the church has had to battle false teachers that try to attack the truth of Scripture. And they do that on many fronts. And of late, I have pondered much about the strategy of the enemy to try to understand the ingenious ways he has infiltrated the church of Jesus Christ with these deceptions. And certainly one of the places where you see it most graphically is in the increasingly popular seeker-sensitive movement that I mentioned earlier. This is perhaps the greatest breeding ground of apostasy, a movement that knows nothing about contending earnestly for the faith. Unquestionably, the most dominant voice in this movement is a pastor by the name of Rick Warren. You've heard me speak about him before. He's the author of The Purpose Driven Life, which has sold over one million copies in 20 different languages. It's also been selected as one of the, quote, 100 Christian books that changed the 20th century, end quote. And as you study that book, you will see that its principles were used to help a fledgling church in Southern California. They began meeting in a, in a house to become a church of now over 16,000 people. Although I would humbly submit that it does not meet the criteria of a church according to the New Testament. Nevertheless, it is called a church, as are many others similar to it. God's standard for success is never numbers, but faithfulness and truth to his word. Yet millions of people prefer Warren's model and many others that he would represent over God's model. In his model, Warren's model, we see that the message and the method are to be determined by the seeker, not by the savior. You will discover very quickly that entertainment should replace exposition. Pleasing the audience is a higher priority than pleasing God. You will quickly discover, especially if you read that book and go to churches like this, that the gospel is diluted beyond recognition in an effort to make it easy to believe. In fact, it's interesting, the clear gospel message cannot be found in the purpose-driven life. You will also find that the sovereignty of God the doctrine of election and the regenerating power of the Spirit of God to save sinners by the power of His Word are all totally denied. Dr. Rick Holland in a Shepherds Conference seminar entitled Evaluating the Church Growth Movement 
identify several other theological problems with Warren's seeker-sensitive model. And again, I, I use Warren because he is so typical of what's going on today. And here's what Dr. Holland has to say, and I quote, Warren assumes that the primary purpose of Sunday morning church services is to reach out to unbelievers. In the New Testament, however, the reason the church gathers is for worship and equipping. Evangelism is to primarily take place in the believer's life context rather than being the main focus of the Sunday worship service. And I'm leaving out many references to reinforce what he's saying. Secondly, he goes on and says, Warren assumes that unbelievers are, quote, seeking, yet Scripture says there is none who seeks for God, Romans 3.11. Warren assumes that the gospel can be made inoffensive to unbelievers if presented correctly, yet Scripture teaches that the gospel is, by its very nature, offensive to those who hate God. Warren assumes that the style of music a church uses is one of its most important keys to reaching the culture. Interestingly, the New Testament is silent regarding this, quote, critical element of church growth. He goes on to say, Warren assumes that large numbers indicate true success. He even says, quote, never criticize any method that God is blessing, end quote, and interprets the, quote, blessings as that which draws a crowd. But... What about the prophet Jeremiah's ministry? He faithfully proclaimed the truth his entire life and yet saw no fruit. According to Warren's model, Jeremiah was a failure. End quote. Now, how did we get here? How how did we get here as Christian people? How did we come to a place where somehow we can buy into these things? Where did we fail to contend earnestly for the faith? And the answer is, we failed to contend earnestly against the attack on the gospel of Christ in many, many, many different places, in many different ways. But I want to point out just one of them for an example today. We failed to contend earnestly against the attack of the inerrancy of Scripture by theological liberalism which, by the way, is the dominant theme in most seminaries today. What is the inerrancy of Scripture, first of all? Let me give you a definition by Dr. Dr. Paul Feinberg. He says, and I quote, The doctrine of biblical inerrancy is the claim that when all facts are known, the Scriptures in their original autographs, and properly interpreted will be shown to be without error in all that they affirm to the degree of precision intended, whether that affirmation relates to doctrine, history, science, geography, geology, etc. End quote. Now, theological liberalism doesn't believe any of that. Let me give you an example of what has happened. Dr. Robert Bratcher was chief translator of the American Bible Society's Good News for Modern Man. If you have a copy of that, I would encourage you to use that for kindling in your fires because it is a terrible translation of the Word of God. Dr. Bratcher was a former Southern Baptist missionary and he was invited to speak at the Christian Life Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention on March of 1981. And he addressed the topic, quote, biblical authority for the church today. And here's what Bratcher had to say, and I quote, 
Only willful ignorance or intellectual dishonesty can account for the claim that the Bible is inerrant and infallible. No truth-loving, God-respecting, Christ-honoring believer should be guilty of such heresy. To invest the Bible with the qualities of inerrancy and infallibility is to idolatrize it, to transform it into a false god. Bratcher went on to say, no one seriously claims that all the words of the Bible are the very words of God. If someone does so, it is only because that person is not willingly willing thoroughly to explore its implications. Words spoken by Jesus in Aramaic in the 30s of the first century and preserved in writing in Greek 35 to 50 years later do not necessarily wield compelling or authentic authority over us today. The locus of scriptural authority is not the words themselves. It is Jesus Christ as the word of God who is the authority for us to be and to do, end quote. Now, dear friends, think with me. The logical consequences of what he just said. In other words, if you believe that the Bible is not really the word of God and that it contains a mixture of truth and error, a concept, by the way, that is consistently denied in Scripture, then there's no real need for us to handle carefully the Scripture. After all, we don't really know if it's true. <laughs> I don't know what's true. I don't know what's false. So why do I need to spend much time carefully understanding it? The logical implications would go on and, and basically say that an errant text will obviously be devoid of spiritual power. So interacting with it, with people, and calling people to submit to it is an exercise in futility. Exegesis and applying the principles of, of hermeneutics and expository preaching are utterly absurd. Because with an errant text, where you don't really know what's true and what's not, it's the preacher or the teacher that must become the higher authority to determine the true meaning of Scripture. Thus assuming the critic himself is inerrant. No one can ever honestly say, thus saith the Lord. Because God has not been able to effectively and clearly and truthfully communicate to us. So why preach or teach? Why even consider the Bible? What you think is truth is okay. What you think is truth is okay. So we just do our own thing. Beloved, that is the legacy of theological liberalism. And there are a thousand other isms promoted by a thousand other false teachers that are equally devastating. And perhaps this one example will cause you to see the danger of cowering in fear before a heretic. The danger of not saying anything when you see people butchering the text. The danger of just kind of sitting idly by and let people say and do things in the name of Christ, that are absolutely heretical. I hope you can see why Jude had such a great concern. May I offer you four very practical ways as we close this morning to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Very quickly, number one, approach your study of Scripture with utmost care and precision. Don't have a cavalier attitude. Approach it with much utmost care and precision, even prayerfully, 
because it is the infallible inspired word of God. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we read that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We are also told in 2 Timothy 2.15 to be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Dear friends, may I remind you, just because it's a bestseller and just because it's sold in a Christian bookstore does not necessarily mean that it's true. Remember, there is a broad way that many will find and a narrow way that few will find. Yeah, but most of it's true, people say. There may be some things in it that aren't true, but most of the things that are said in these books are true. Well, my response to that is every heresy is a good heresy only if it has major elements of truth in it. That's the only way you can have a good counterfeit. Never forget that snake venom is 90% protein. won't hurt you. It's good for you. It's that 10% that will kill you. So we need to be good Bereans and approach our study with fervent prayer. In fact, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Examine literally means to test or to analyze everything, to prove it carefully and hold fast, jealously safeguard that which is good. In other words, that which is genuine and true. A second practical way we can contend earnestly for the faith is don't be a spiritual pacifist. Instead, develop a warrior mentality. Now, I don't mean become a Christian gadfly where you're buzzing around trying to sting everybody that doesn't believe exactly the way you do. In fact, I'm very leery of most discernment ministries and heresy hunters because I see all too often they are prone to excess, exaggeration, sometimes outright lies and pride. But be ready to contend earnestly. In fact, the qualification for an elder and Titus 1.9 is to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. In other words, the apostolic teaching that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. A third very practical way we can contend for the faith is to preach and teach the whole purpose of God, not just your favorite stories and your pet doctrines. In other words, move beyond your comfort zone in what you study, what you preach, what you teach. The Apostle Paul said in Acts 20, verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. In other words, the entirety of God's revelation to us. You know, this is why I love expository preaching, because you just preach the next text. You don't come to a text and say, oh, boy, that's controversial. That might offend so-and-so or somebody over here. So I think I'll just kind of, you know, not, not talk about that. In fact, I have been asked to speak in churches where they give me a list of things I'm not supposed to preach on. You know, a lot of churches, about all they talk about is evangelism. And I know a lot of Christians. Once, once you get beyond evangelism 101, they're pretty much lost. Or some people, all they want to talk about is, uh, is creation or, or ecclesiology, the study of the doctrines of the church and church polity, or, or eschatology, or the doctrine of election, or signs and wonders, or separatism, or biblical counseling, or whatever. Friends, avoid being obsessed with, with any singular focus. Instead, preach and teach the whole purpose of God. And finally, may I encourage you, if you're going to contend earnestly for the faith, please, please, please be doers of the word and not mere hearers of the word. 
James tells us in James 1, 22, prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Delude means to miscalculate yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty and abides by it. Not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. Friends, your life and my life may be the only Bible a person ever has ever read. Well, with this background, we are ready now to carefully examine Jude's passionate warning to contend earnestly for the faith against false teachers. And may we all pay close attention in the weeks to come and apply these truths to our life. Let's pray together. Father, I pray indeed that you will cause us to take seriously what you have gone to such great lengths and great care to present to us in your word. Lord, may we be faithful soldiers of the cross, willing to contend earnestly for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. I pray this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.